It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. You know, I, I don't hold a hose, mate, and I, I don't give you a control room. They're answers that only can come from Victoria, I'm afraid, because that's not my job. But I ain't spending any time, though, because in the meantime, every three months, a person is torn to pieces by a crocodile in North Queensland. Well, g'day and welcome to Hard Hats and High Viz. We're in week 23 and week 23 coincides with a very profound event as we record. Uh, they're gearing up uh, in the UK for the royal funeral, the funeral of QE2, Elizabeth II. Joining me as usual is Hong Kong Jack. How are you, mate? In the pink, mate. Going very pink. nicely. Here. Got the black on. Got the black on for uh, for the royal <laughs> for, funeral today, as, as usual. Yeah. I know that's. Uh, I know we're working on uh, auditory in terms of our uh, in terms of our uh, uh, recording, but uh, I can see Jack uh, in Hong Kong uh, looking back at me with the black t shirt on. Very respectful, Jack. Uh, absolutely appropriate. Um, uh, and never mind that uh, it's the same gear you wear every day, but uh, that's... Well, that's that, that, are, there, are there other colours? Other colours, <laughs> right? <there? laughs> I actually think black is not a colour, technically. Um, but um, uh, but there you are. Yes, you're being very, very respectful. That, when we talk about the royal funeral, and, and it's uh, it, it going to be occurring within hours, the guest list is absolutely spectacular. There are... There are people from uh, all royal families around the world, Jack, um, including some I didn't even know <laughs> existed. Uh, did you know uh, that there is an hereditary Prince Alwa of Liechtenstein? I did know that Liechtenstein's had some kind of royal family. Yes, I did. The Grand Duke of uh, Luxembourg as, as will as be there. As Luxembourgish, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the King of Tonga, we all know about, normally gets around his own chair because uh, he's a large human being, or the, uh, I think some of his predecessors were, I, I think, uh, did turn up at the marriage of, or the, I think, two kings of Tonga ago, turned up to the royal marriage of Charles and Diana and had to have his own seat brought for him because he's a very large, he was a very large human being. Uh, we've got the Salman of Saudi Arabia, the Amir of the State of Qatar, King of Norway, King of Netherlands, Crown Prince of Monaco, Prince of Monaco, the Malaysian Sultan. That was another one I did not know. Um, so, yes, Jack, uh, it seems like there are monarchies absolutely everywhere. Yeah, if you, if you compare this funeral with, say, um, the funerals of Queen Victoria, uh, Edward VII and the Queen's own father. Well, at, at Victoria's funeral, there were lots of royals because most of the most of the royals around the world and in Europe were related to it. Well, co- they were cousins, yeah, yeah or, or, or or grandchildren. Um, mm. the, 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 um, the 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 emperor of it, of the German of the Germans was a was a grandson. I guess, if I yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And and similarly for Edward VII's funeral, but by the time it got to the funeral of the Queen's father, George VI, there were plenty of royals, but in terms of political leaders there, it tended, it tended to be the ambassador from somewhere. You know, the United States sent Dean Acheson, the Secretary of State. The President of France was there, but pretty much everybody else was an ambassador. On this occasion... All the presidents and prime ministers are turning up as well. Yeah, there are a few omissions, but uh, you know, basically, 
it would have to be the greatest collection of world leaders I think the world has ever seen, Jack. I mean, obviously Biden is there, Truss is there, um, but uh, we've got the Prime Minister of Palestine, uh, the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea. Uh, of course, Justin Trudeau will be there, Jack. He'll be in black money. He won't uh, won't be cosplaying this time. Emmanuel Macron is there, uh, the President of Ireland, Michael Higgins, uh, rather wonderful fellow, uh, President of Italy, Sergio Mattarella, um, Jacinda Ardern is uh, is there. She had a, a little story to tell about uh, what advice uh, Elizabeth gave her about um, uh, being a political figure and and also being a a new mum. And that advice was you just get on with it. Um, so yeah, I, I can't recall a time uh, where uh, where. Um, uh, where we've seen a, a collection of the world's leaders gather in one place. Uh, and you would have to say that this is perhaps um, a, a gathering of the West rather than uh, what, rather than the East, perhaps. Um, certainly not there is Vladimir Putin, uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, the distinguished, distinguished British journalist Andrew Neil put it, put it rather well, I think. He said in his lifetime... I can think of only three deaths with similar international impact. The, the assassination of President Kennedy, the death of Winston Churchill in 1965, and, and of Nelson Mandela in 2013. But the global grieving and the turn-up for this today is even better than all three of those. Yes, um, I mean, it's not just presidents, prime ministers, kings, queens, sultans, princes. We also have, uh, you know, a great gathering of diplomats around the world. The Secretary General of NATO will be there, the President of the EU, uh, the President of the EU Council have been invited. Uh, Celebrity-wise, we're not entirely sure, but we believe Sir David Attenborough will be at the funeral and uh, possibly David Beckham, uh, Jack. Um, uh, Golden Bulls. Uh, yes, I, I, well, he certainly had meetings with the Queen. Um, it'll be interesting to see how, uh, well, just a curiosity, really. But, I mean, does this, does, this great, uh, does this gathering present an opportunity for diplomacy, a genuine um, uh, opportunity for um, uh, diplomacy? Um, or is it uh, that uh, diplomatic matters and, and other... Um, uh, potential problems around the world will be pushed to one side. Well, usually what happens with, with, when world leaders are all in the one spot for whatever reason, they have a few little meetings uh, in the side rooms, um, uh, have breakfast meetings, etc., etc., to catch up and, and and deal with a few problems that they've got. Um, I've, I've read accounts of uh, of Harold Holt's funeral, of um, uh, you know, remember LBJ turned up for that, as did various other dignitaries, and it was a great deal of toing and froing in the hotel. So they made use of the time they were down in Melbourne, and I should think this would happen here as well. Uh, yes, you would expect uh, a lot of that stuff, and I suspect that it'll be setting up um, for for other meetings later on. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, notable absences, uh, as I said before, Vladimir Putin, for rather obvious reasons, I would imagine. Um, and uh, <coughs> Donald Trump seems to have been left out, Jack, although I do believe um, uh, 
are the Clintons going? Is W going? I mean, I'm talking about living presidents now. I didn't um, think they were, yeah. to be frank. Well, well it, it does raise the other issue is that the beast, the, uh, uh, the presidential vehicle... Uh, known as the beast because it, it weighs weighs more than a tank, uh, will be used. So Biden will be transported around, but I think the rest of them have to catch the bus. Yes, not they won't be on the tube, but they'll have to catch the bus. Yes, it'll, it'll, be, it'll, it'll be a nice bus. There'll be nice buses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and uh, but the beast will be making its way to wherever uh, the funeral cortege is. Um, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see uh, just exactly what, if anything, arises uh, from these meetings. I suspect not very much, in, in, but there will be a lot of dialogue and there may well be plans set in place for the future. Um, I, I did see uh, our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, uh, was actually uh, uh, imploring or at least um, uh, acknowledging that... Uh, uh, King Charles III uh, should continue to talk about climate change, Jack. Yes. It's always a curious thing. People are very keen to encourage um, uh, uh, a constitutional monarch to talk about issues where they're pretty confident that, it, that he's going to agree with them. Yeah, that's right. But what he can't do, uh, is, what, what, what King Charles, sorry, the third can't do is start talking about matters that might uh, be in conflict with government policy uh, or, or stand as a potential uh, point of conflict with the government. It's not even a question of being in conflict with the government. What the monarch shouldn't do is talk about issues that have a political context. Um, you can't be on one side or the other. It doesn't matter which side you're on, you're wrong. Um, you've, got to, you've got to steer away from... Um, from issues that are inher- inherently political. So if he was to talk about the ravages of climate change in the way that perhaps um, uh, David Attenborough does, Sir David Attenborough, that might be okay? Or no. is, is it just not an area that he should be talking about at all? Oh, not at all. It's, 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 it's an, it, it is a political issue. Um, what we do about climate change, uh, how serious climate change. These are contested issues. These are political issues. He should be steering well clear of that. Well, Albo says it's not partisan. Climate change is not a partisan issue. But I, 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 I hear what you're saying. The, I guarantee you the media is waiting for Charles III to make that kind of slip, that the, <clears throat> the public comment that would be in in conflict or potential conflict with the government of the day. I'm sure Albo would prefer that climate change was a non-partisan issue, but I assure you it is. Yes, well, uh, <coughs> uh, yes. Not well, just we'll in see. Australia, it is I, around I, the world. I, I honestly believe that, you know, that uh, that there'll be a great deal of scrutiny uh, over Charles' uh, reign very, very quickly coming into... Uh, uh, just where he's going to stand. I suspect he's going to be a, a relatively silent figure on 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 global issues. I mean, his old man was uh, with the World Wildlife Fund, Jack, and he was yeah. talking about extinctions and uh, issues around that. You know, you would say is vaguely political, isn't it? Yeah, but only vaguely. He was also very fond of shooting pheasants, but, you know... Yeah, well, you know, just, just as long as they're not shooting pandas. The, um, 
your uh, your colleague from News Limited, Nick Cater, had some uh, some polling results in today's paper, and, and he had seventy five percent of Australians agreeing that Charles will make a good king, compared to thirty three percent who, in answer to a separate question, say he's weak and out of touch. That will be okay, provided he stays out of politics. He might he won't keep those figures, but he might keep some good figures provided he stays away from political questions. Um, but if, as soon as he goes into that area... Yeah, oh, I absolutely agree. And that's why I think the media is standing by watching to see what he's going to do next. And so that's going to be a really crucial thing. I mean, uh, he would be acutely aware, I presume, that there's a Republican movement in the UK, not just here, uh, and uh, and that uh, now with the with the death and funeral of, of uh, Elizabeth II, uh, m- some people, if given the right stimulus, might be drawn towards. And I'm talking about in the UK, you know, contemplating the end of the monarchy. Yes, I, I don't see any um, uh, appetite for that at the moment, but it could, could quickly develop if if he's an yeah, in- yeah, interfering yeah, king. Point. And, look, personal behaviour and all that sort of stuff will be closely monitored here. What should the Republican movement be doing, Jack? I noticed they suspended, uh, the ARM, that is, um, uh, suspended their discussions on on, uh, on a republic uh, during this period of mourning. I don't know when that ends, whether it ends this week or, uh, or they're just going to keep quiet for a little while. That's probably the way to play it, isn't it? Keeping quiet yeah, would be pretty good advice, I would think. that issue of what we what we do about appointing a head of state, whether it's done by parliamentary appointment, uh, whether it's done by uh, by a, um, uh, a vote, or their current model is that uh, that the states and territories all make uh, all all make nominations, uh, with the federal government making three, and then we uh, all sit around and vote for what is a sort of list of ten or so potentials. Yeah, uh, the, the, their problem. With, with the ARM remains the same, is that there is still a three-way split between the minimalist Republicans, the uh, presidential Republicans, and the um, and the and the monarchists. And, and and while there's a three-way split, you can't get a referendum. Yeah, that's why they've tried to come up with this model that they hope will satisfy those who believe in the election of a of a head of state and those who believe in in a, in a parliamentary appointment. It's a sort of the best of a hybrid model, if you like. I don't know that we should even be discussing these things, Jack. On the day that uh, Elizabeth II is interred, she's—I believe—she'll uh, she'll be in uh, interred in uh, Westminster Cathedral. Is that correct? Uh, in uh, in the in the oh, chapel at uh, Windsor Castle, I think. Well, they're is, they're where, where they got quite a few monarchs there, and I think also Darwin. Uh, Charles Darwin is is buried there, um, in in the cathedral there. So so oh okay. So yes, in the cathedral. At, did you say Balmoral? No no no. The, oh, um, the in 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 a a private private vault at Windsor. Yeah, it's been an interesting demonstration of just how much soft power um, the United Kingdom retains. Um, you know, you, we, we tend to think of them, well, they're a former power, they're a former imperial power, but they do retain a hell of a lot of soft power. Um, uh, the Queen was able to use that quite a lot with, with the Commonwealth, which is really her crowning glory of her, of her reign as, uh, as Queen. The Commonwealth's been a huge success. 50, 56 countries, um, not all of them 
had anything much to do with uh, with, with the British well, British Empire at all. Yeah, um, yeah. And they're still keen to join. We've seen yeah. this here in, in terms of uh, in terms of the guest list, Jack. Uh, a lot of countries that have no direct connection with the United Kingdom um, throughout Europe, yeah. throughout uh, throughout uh, throughout the West, rest of the world. Um, Brazil is having a day yeah. of mourning. Yeah. Uh, in India, where there where there are still scars from um, from the, the days of empire, uh, social scars from the days of empire, they had. A and day. we're having one here on Thursday. What about what about Hong Kong, Jack? What's being done there? Uh, nothing official. Um, there's been um, some thousands of people turn up at the British Consulate General here um, uh, to lay flowers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and sign books, etc. But nothing, uh, nothing uh, on a government. Not, not adding to, government. to the already long list of public holidays. No shame, really. <laughs> and it is Monday. An opportunity yeah. missed, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yes. No, we uh, Australia will have a uh, public holiday, a one-off uh, on the twenty-second, which is uh, you'd imagine Melbournians are pretty happy about it. Well, uh, I've had a few complaints from from Melbourne relatives that. Yeah, you know, they've bunged this four-day weekend on us um, without, without notice. planning. So we, yeah. haven't had, we haven't had time to plan for it, mind you. I've got some old Melbourne friends who were never happy about the grand final holiday on the Friday in the first place. Well, no one used to work, Jack. We'll talk about the, the, the AFL grand yeah, final week. I mean, yeah. you wouldn't have put in a lick of work in a grand final even in your life. I certainly haven't. Well, it, well, it, a great tradition has had developed, as you know, that. Um, the chaps who had to go into the office would disappear at lunchtime you know, about yeah, you know, twelve yeah. thirty, and that was you know true enough. Um, that, yeah. that, that, that was it for the day. Um, and when the public holiday came in, they weren't very happy about this because they were having to look after the kids at home rather <laughs> than the kids being tucked up at school. Yeah, yeah look, I, I, and it does make the city very crowded. If you're popping in for a bit of lunch in in the city for some of the big events, grand final eve events, and you and I have been to a few of them. Yes. Um, all of a sudden, you've got to get through the um, uh, through through the through the parade, the AFL Players Parade, Grand Final Players yes. Parade. I found yes. that <laughs> to uh, run across the road there uh, uh, under the watchful eye of a police officer right, in order to get to my venue. Um, yes. Yeah, so it's a funny thing, but Melbourne will have uh, four days off. Uh, uh, well, yes, it's just Melbourne only, isn't it? The AFL Grand Final. Um, uh, Eve yeah. as a public holiday, but, not for the not for rural Victoria. It, it'll be interesting to see what the figures are. They're, they're talking about perhaps four billion people around the world will watch at least part of today's ceremony. And I'm I'm, I'm always a bit sort of suspicious of those. You know, it's like the AFL saying, you know, how many billion people around the world watch the grand final? I never quite believe that, but. Um, well, but it's, yes, it's not, it, it won't be. Full. It is a big occasion. There's no doubt about it. It's a big occasion. Yes, no, you'd imagine that sort of figure will run, and to, to you know, it depends on how you measure it. But if anyone's caught sight of coverage of the funeral, you'd imagine that would be well into the billions, uh, well into you know, from four four billion. Well, that's half of us basically. Uh, now, on to more mundane matters, uh, Jack. Uh, I. Uh, Read a, a piece by David Pemberthy, um, who's uh, the Australian South Australian um, uh, a correspondent, uh, and also a talkback radio man now and former editor of the Daily Telegraph. And he made some reasonable points about Twitter and journalism. Um, 
and we've sort of talked about this. I, I, I don't sort of go for this business that journalists should avoid it, and I, I wasn't entirely sure whether that was Pembo uh, saying that this is this is the case. But he did um, mention um, uh, the great late the late great uh, journalist Mark Colvin as a, as a practitioner of what Twitter used to be and and probably still should be. Uh, Mark was a, a very close friend of mine uh, and there is a great certainty. I certainly felt it and spoke to a lot of journalists at his funeral who said that uh, they felt a gaping hole had come into the industry with Mark leaving it, leaving us. Um, and I'm not quite sure how well Pembo would know uh, Mark Colvin, perhaps a little uh, in passing, but... Did you read the piece? What did you make I of it? I did indeed. I, I, I generally enjoy Penbo's uh, pieces in this train. Yeah, he gets away with saying shit. Um, uh, he does He does get away with using the word shit, uh, which is generally frowned upon. Um, but he got away with it. Shit canned. He does so, he, he does have that sort of easy way of uh, of writing in, um, uh, in, a, in a, um, a measured sort of way. He's a very fine writer. There are some points beyond this relationship or not with with Mark Colvin and citing Mark as the sort of god, you know, the, the fallen god of Twitter. Um, he does make some very good points. I use Twitter a lot less now than I used to, uh, and I tend to just respond with people. I also sort of follow the DMs a bit as well. I tend not to spend any um, great chunks of time on it. I think that's. That's where I think journalists can go wrong. Um, <clears throat> but he does talk about, God, when I read some of these things and I do flip through, you know, the, the general timeline and I see the sort of attacks on Lisa Miller, who's an ABC correspondent who does, um, who does their breakfast show and I think she's in London now to cover the funeral. Um, it's just awful. I mean, it's just who from the ABC is not in London coming. Well, yeah, true enough. Um, they've got the whole breakfast team over there, and she's one. And I, I did see some 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 tweets saying now that she's overseas, now we can sort of she can stay there. We won't let her back into the country. That sort of stuff. She's perceived to a, to to hold a right wing line, you know, and that might be that she's asked questions of. Um, perhaps someone like Anthony Albanese or Dan Andrews over the journey and, and those questions have been perceived by large chunks of the Twitter audience as being in some way biased. Well, the, the, the best point that David Pemberthy made, I think, is that uh, for a profession that, that used to pride itself on loving argument, the journalists on Twitter are really searching for agreement, demanding agreement with each other. Uh, and that's boring for starters. Um, and it's contrary to the best uh, traditions of the profession, of the craft. Well, I guess the response to it is, <laughs> I tend to agree with you, but I guess the response to that is that they're actually, you know, people and, and, and mentioned in this column are, uh, Barry Cassidy, the former Insiders host, um, I guess implicit in this is um, uh, your mate, but not mine, Mike Carlton, uh, and there are one or two at News Corp who don't get mentioned, or ex-News Corp journos who, who now are uh, railing about uh, uh, News Corp uh, media dominance and 
all this sort of stuff, which is really tiresome. Uh, <clears throat> because as, as, as Pembo points out, uh, um, uh, or in fact, uh, his colleague and mine, um, John Ferguson said, uh, if they all filed from the altar of perfection, then good luck. I just never heard the screams of revulsion when they were putting the next round on expenses, which is a lot. I, I did enjoy reading that, that I must say. Uh, that was excellent from John Ferguson. Oh, yes, Fergie's a wonderful man. Um, and very, very, very amusing, very amusing company. Um, uh, yeah, look. Pen, Penbo went on to say. Oh, Carlton, I was going to mention Paul Bonciano. You know, he, he, is, he has just become almost, you know, sort of – pontificating on Twitter. And I think that's a grave mistake. Well, he's um, he's rediscovered uh, the art of giving sermons that he did when he was a priest, I think, <laughs> Paul Bonciorno. <laughs> uh, he's gone back to the... He, 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 he does seem to think that we're all sitting patiently in the pews waiting for him to fill our minds with wisdom. Look... My view on Twitter is that it has, a, 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 that it, besides being, it can be an echo chamber, it can be um, uh, people uh, uh, from one broad political affiliation sort of talking amongst themselves. It's not all, it's not always like that. Um, uh, the, the times that I've found Twitter to be very useful as a journalist are when big stories are breaking because you do get that people on the ground telling you what's happening. I'm trying to think of a good example, but the the um, uh, tsunami and earthquakes that affected uh, the uh, uh, nuclear power plants at Fukushima are a very good example. That you you were getting that news from Twitter before you were getting it from from uh, uh, mainstream media. Generally speaking, about half an hour to an hour ahead, and just in terms of what was going on there, it looked to be a, a complete meltdown. Now, I, and, I, and I just use that as an example of a major news event and how that can roll. Where it gets really ugly is is in the in the postscript to all of that. So another example I can think of uh, the um, uh, the Islamic State terrorist outrage in in Paris that had us all shocked. Now Twitter again very very good at delivering basic information about what was happening at at the time, and then as the day wore on, uh, and and, and and uh, media moved in and, and, and obviously police, police and, and security agencies moved in and so forth. So essentially the, the incident was over and, and many people had been killed uh, and that's when Twitter got really, really ugly. Very good at news, at news dissemination in the early stages, but then when people had a chance to ponder what had happened, then that echo chamber came forward. Well, it is an echo chamber. As I said, they, 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 most of the people on Twitter, and Twitter is largely a progressive uh, media. Oh, there's no doubt about um, that, yeah. They, what they really are searching for is agreement. Uh, agreement. I always had this kind of mental picture that before uh, Mike Carlton or Peter Fitzsimons or Barry Cassidy or these people tweet anything, they kind of ring each other up and make sure, they make sure they're all on the same page. You know? oh, well, that's, that's, that, that's the same sort of conspiracy theory that affects News Corp, that we all sort of gather at midnight and strangle cats <laughs> and work out what we're going to be writing about today as a sort of echo chamber as well. So, the, yeah, not, not a lot to be said about that, but, you, but people uh, of the, the, the ilk of Barry 
Cassidy, who I know, uh, we'll, we'll drop these things in and they are looking for, well, I, I don't think Barry would be obsessed about likes, but he really wants to make a point to what are very substantial numbers. Um, uh, I think there are something like 2 million, uh, 2 million u- uh, users in uh, on Twitter. No, I think it's higher. It's actually 3 million users. It would be, it remains to be seen how many of them uh, uh, are regular users. Uh, I, there'd be data available for that. But yeah, there's, there's this long sort of line of, of, um, uh, of journalists like that. And you would have also come across someone by the name of Ronnie Saltjack in, in your Twitter um, uh, musings yourself or you're following no, Twitter. Can't, can't, say, can't say I have. Oh, it's an interesting one. It's, 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 it's obviously a nom de plume. We don't know who that person is. This person may or may not have had some sort of connection to a news organisation. Um, and that particular person uh, does write for um, occasionally, I'm just trying to think who she writes for, whether it's the Independent Australia or some other, some other, some other column, um, but uh, never disclosed who her name is uh, and also sort of um, um, has a way of get, getting a story out about, uh, about politicians. Uh, uh, <coughs> There we go. Can I just give you a? Can I just give you a? a, a um, I'll give you an example. Um, there's a there's a woman by the name of Elizabeth Ma uh, who's talking about Piers Morgan, and she said, "I read that his vendetta against Megan started because he claimed she was happy to be friendly with him prior to a marriage, and then she dumped him." didn't want to speak to him. So being a dysfunctional sociopath, he launched his campaign to destroy both Harry and Megan. Ronnie Salt. Uh, replies, the problem is, Elizabeth, you and everyone else has no idea any uh, any of that happened at all. So only you only have the say-so of Piers Morgan, a dead girl's phone tapper, an inveterate liar. There is no proof anywhere for any of the any of his claims. It all comes out from his mouth alone. So that's a bit of a that's a pretty good example of the sort of stuff Ronnie Salt who. Is a, as I say, a pseudonym uh, comes up with. Piers normally responds to the dead girl's phone tapper by saying, "Well, you got um, a, a day to with, well, you got some hours to withdraw that, or I'll sue you." And they always do because it isn't true. Um, I, personally, well, it's I not, find it can't proof. be proven. I'll, I'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I think he's actually right. That that wasn't him. That was somebody else who did that. In any event. Um, uh, Twitter, I find, can be a really good source of information because some people on Twitter link to good um, information, good news reporting that I otherwise wouldn't see. So I enjoy that. And apart from that, I just find it immensely entertaining um, because I enjoy people making dicks of themselves (laughs) in public um, and people are very inclined to do that on Twitter. It is is a great way to spend a day. Um, yeah. uh, or, or a couple of hours in the day. Yeah, look, that, yeah. that was that was Mark's great great gift to to Twitter, and and he had look, I think over a hundred thousand followers, uh, and he would link to stories of of note around the world that were either being yeah. missed or perhaps underreported by the mainstream media. So that that was his great gift, and and he was a you know profound, profoundly good journalism uh, journalist, and and. Uh, 
and and uh, as I say, very very good friend of mine, and, and a person who had so much to to tell you. There were just wonderful stories. He was in Iran uh, for the Iranian at the, at the time of the Iranian Islamic Revolution. Uh, he was there when Khomeini came to to rule in in Tehran, and uh, and he tells a story about how you know. Khomeini's followers grabbed them all foreign journalists put them all on a couple of buses and took them outside Tehran where there were just literally mounds of bodies of those that had been disposed of because they were seen to be a threat and and then dragged the journalists out of a bus and said here you go film this report this you tell the world this is what we do and um, and and it's just an astonishing thing I mean it, <clears throat> he was in Rwanda uh, during the genocide there. Uh, in fact, that's where he became quite ill. He picked up a, um, a, uh, a, 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 a tropical illness that, just, that just didn't get diagnosed for a very, very long time. He became very ill in London uh, and was uh, given so much cortisone um, that basically turned, it rendered his bones into chalk. That's a slight overstatement, but he had um, uh, problems with mobility ever since, and also blew his blew his kidney out, uh, blew kidney function away, and uh, and of course that led to uh, him being on dialysis for a long, long uh, time, often there two, three days a week on dialysis at uh, St Vincent's in Sydney, and uh, and also um, uh, then he received a transplant, and there was a brilliant moment where you know a brilliant period where where Mark was. Pretty much all better um, for 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 a little while, and then, as I said before, he he, he developed cancer and uh, and uh, and and passed away, leaving a huge hole in journalism in this country. Yeah, well, I think the information stuff's important, but never underestimate the importance of um, of uh, uh, and the joy that you can get from watching people make complete clowns of themselves. Well, it's also a format that's that's given to the quip. You know, the smart-ass remark, and mm. I'd like to think I do a little bit of that uh, on it. I really am only in it for the humour these days. If I do see a major story, if I'm aware of a major story developing, I will look it up to see what uh, see what people might be saying about it. Uh, but other than that, I just, uh, I'm just in it mainly for the gags. Yep. Same with me. All right. So that's Twitter and uh, and uh, whether journalists should be a part of it. I, I suspect uh, they shouldn't be told what not to do, um, but um, but they shouldn't be too serious about adopting Twitter as a, uh, as a force. It used to be really good. You could sort of you know link to your own articles and then put it up, and you might sort of expand your readership. But that doesn't work anymore. Um, you know, you can put it up there and there'll be a couple of likes and a couple of retweets, but it, it's really not about that anymore. It's really about, yeah, getting out there, being a bit sanctimonious and getting your point across and and uh, and, and in response, hopefully, someone taking the piss out of it, someone like me. All right, Jack. Well, um, <clears throat> we've got some, we've got a listener's um, uh, letter, which I have. And I do apologise about this. We have been um, uh, 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 a little bit loath in, in putting forward. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, and I do apologise. But uh, I just want to take you to see our parliaments have all been suspended, Jack, with the royal funerals and, and, and period of mourning and what have you. So it means that the minor parties 
uh, are really sort of battling to get a, a point across. Uh, and uh, so it came in that uh, the New South Wales uh, Upper House member for well, uh, Upper House member David Shoebridge, Greens member David Shoebridge, just repeated Greens policy. Uh, and it is a beautiful, wonderful thing. A legislative minimum wage of no less than 60% of the median Australian full time wage, which I think is about $80,000 now. So 60% of that is the legislative minimum wage. Uh, and a transition toward a four-day or equivalent standard working week with no reduction in overall pay, Jack. Happy days. Isn't this wonderful? <laughs> you can rely on the Greens, can't yeah. you? And, and, and one or two more public holidays. Why not around grand final time? Um, yeah, so there it was. I mean, what sort of – what sort of would, would this just be a terrible wreck? If you're working 38 hours a week and you're able to do that in four rather than five, wouldn't that be a, a good thing in terms of productivity? Well, it depends what sort of business you're in. Yeah. Yeah. So – and as, as indeed as the minimum wage, I mean, the, the problem with having a high minimum wage is that you cut from the prospect of employment people who um, can't do something at that level. So we're talking about you know? unskilled, semi-skilled sort of workers yeah. Yeah. And, and them working, let's say, um, uh, police work in a factory, for example, um, yeah. uh, or assembly work in a factory, for example. Uh, you can employ them, though. Surely you can just get them to do their 38 hours over four rather than five? It isn't so much the piecework in the factory. It's someone who puts on someone to sweep a few floors and do a few things like that. Um, uh, if, if that's just not economic, they don't get any work. That's the thing, isn't it? You know, that, that's the thing. Now, the French have had some experience on this. They went to a four-day working week, didn't they? And I'm not yeah, sure where and, we and are. They have, and they have the eight weeks holiday a year and um, all that sort of stuff. God, I moved. God, I moved to France. I've, I've had a look at some real estate there, and and it's pretty cheap. It's not Sydney, you know, a bit cheaper than Sydney. So, got to get there. Got to get along there. So, you get the eight weeks. You get the eight weeks annual leave, and you're working four uh, days a week. I think it might be six official, right. but you know, I've I've got a pal here who uh, who uh, was notorious for having sick days when he worked for a British bank here. You know, um, in our local pub, there was a, um, a a chalkboard with the number of sick days he had. But now that he's moved to a French bank, it's perfectly okay. <laughs> they think he's the, they think he's the hardest working bloke in the place. Yeah, you know? <laughs> just can't get rid of him. He's there all day. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah look, it's 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 a strange thing. I, French French economy is not well, it's not doing as badly as the UK. So it's not as if these things are absolutely catastrophic. Uh, and and maybe we do need to talk about them. I, I have this view that we should be talking a lot more about work than we do, um, because it is really the the biggest thing outside of family. It's the it's the biggest thing in our lives. So why not talk about alternatives to work, alternatives to uh, uh, your, your actual hours? I mean, I, I think if you're a nurse working in intensive care and you work a 10-hour shift four days a week, and most of them work longer than that, to be fair, you know, that, that, they should, that, that, that basically should be it, you know, that they have four on, three off. Horses for courses, in my view. Um, this is a matter that should be worked out to suit particular jobs, particular industries and particular organisations or companies. You can't just impose that 
across the board. I mean, if you did no. bring in a, a minimum wage that was, let's say, 60% of 80000 80, so nearly $50,000 as a minimum wage, uh, that's, a, that's a spike of, well, gee, well, gee whiz, a good good $25,000 a year. That's not going to be good for a lot of small businesses, is it? And it's not going to be good for a lot of people who are on low incomes because those jobs will disappear. Yeah, okay. Yeah, good point. Now, look, I did uh, I got uh, got myself a little bit tied up, but we did have a sort of related, vaguely related question from our listener, Shane. I appreciate uh, your patience in me reading this, uh, Shane. And this is related to sort of education and training. He's throwing, he's throwing a few ideas around, Jack. He said, Jack, still loving hard hats and high vis. Definitely worth continuing your weekly focus on domestic politics. This is the hard hats and high vis. We do a uh, another program called Around the World. Um, and he's, uh, he urges us to keep it up. Would like to hear your thoughts on the education sector. Serious issues of workplace practices, workload and pay in a field that has a clear economic and social benefit. How have the education unions and government allowed it get to, to get to this? I guess he's saying that uh, our educational standards aren't terribly high. Where have the wheels fallen off? What policies going forward should we consider? Cut funding to private schools, lift teacher pay, make teachers work 38 hours a week. I think most of them work a good deal more than that. Keen to get your thoughts. Thanks, Shane. So thank you, Shane, for that. Uh, oh, and then he goes on to say, having the feds take over education could also be an option. Unfortunately, we still have many interpretations of a national curric curriculum, plenty of options, but never a policy area that gets the attention it deserves. It probably does, is my short answer to that, uh, Shane, that we have way too much focus on some of the um, uh, minutiae of national curriculum, but uh, and that that fills up a lot of op-eds as we go forward. So is it broken first, Jack? Is our education and training system broken? I'm a little out of touch with it. My kids are sort of through the education system oh, now. Me too, yeah, and I'm uh, and glad uh, of it, by the way. Yeah. Um, I think there are some things that we have lost from um, from the time when I was going through education in the 60s and 70s that I think we're probably better there and I think we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater to some extent. Um, the high schools were good. We had an excellent, in Victoria at least, we had an excellent tech school system because uh, yes. an academic education system doesn't um, uh, benefit everybody. There are always going to be people who are better off in a tech school, learning a trade, uh, learning a craft, doing something like that. And, and we've kind of gotten rid of that. We haven't we haven't looked after that well enough. Yeah, well, the tech schools are pretty much all gone now. The, the issue around them, and, and, it, and it is something that should probably not have occurred, but the issue around it was that how do we stream? How do we stream kids into uh, uh, a technical uh, uh, training? Uh, and how do we determine whether they should be pursuing other academic pursuits? I think that was the, that was the sort of problem that that there was a distinction around that that was saying kids from certain backgrounds should be going straight into technical schools, uh, and uh, and and kids who are uh, perhaps uh, higher up on the socioeconomic scale they should be pursuing 
um, they should be pursuing an academic education. And, and I think that was the difficulty with that with that area. How, having said that, it would be very beneficial to have our schools with with uh, uh, with um, uh, training uh, and trade skills made available to them right now so so kids can actually make those choices as they go. I think your dad taught at Preston Tech, didn't he? He did, so did my mother, right? Yeah, both taught at Preston Tech um, and, uh, and there were some pretty rough kids in those days too. You know, um, uh, it, it, it did... It did offer kids who perhaps were never going to finish school, and this is the point. So everyone's finished the school now. Everyone, everyone, you can't not finish HSC and continue in 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 Australia. You just there are so many jobs that you simply won't um, uh, be able to do or won't be employed to do. So everyone finishes going to HSC, and then they make the decision about trade training. So I think that's a mistake. We've also got to the point where we're priding ourselves on how many people go to university, and I and I don't I don't really think going to university is of great a great deal of benefit for a lot of people. It is for some, but not for everybody. Um, so I think we need to move back a little bit closer to what it was in the nineteen sixties. The other thing is I'm, I'm a little bit old fashioned. I, lo- I love the selective selective state schools. I've got no problem with government money going to private schools, but I love the selective state schools because I think they offer a ladder of opportunity for the, for the disadvantaged in the community. Um, you look at something like Fort Street High School, Fort Street Boys High School in Sydney, five high court judges um, have come through Fort Street, including Michael Kirby, uh, Edmund Barton, um, uh, um, yeah, the Prime Minister, Doc Evatt, the President of the United Nations, um, you know, but the problem, uh, the problem with that approach, and look at I, I, and I look at uh, Melbourne, uh, Melbourne High School, for example, is another select school. Uh, McGregor, uh, I think it's McGregor Girls High as well. McRobertson, uh, I should say, McRobertson is the sort of uh, sister school for that. Um, uh, and there's uh, Hurlston uh, in New South Wales as well, um, uh, and they consistently uh, come up with the best HSC results every every time. Um, but the problem is, in terms of who gets there, that selection is basically determined at year seven, which is way too young. Yes, I agree with that. Um, they would be better off um, uh, as three-year high schools. What about teachers, Jack? Are, are they failing their kids? I was talking to a teacher on Saturday night, and, and I presume a very, very good one, and, uh, and she was saying that it is incredibly difficult to teach kids now. Um, not just from a discipline point of view, although there is that, um, but you have got um, you know, large groups of kids who really don't have a lot of good language and numeracy skills getting into the higher the higher levels of secondary education. Well, that's that's surely a problem for the lower levels of, levels of education if they're getting there without that. <sighs> They won't. They won't keep them back much these days, mate. And 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 so you are getting kids who have basically got through somehow. Uh, and and this is not just something within the state system, by the way. Uh, who have got through somehow with the view that oh well we'll sort it all out by year ten or year eleven or then year twelve. And uh, <clears throat> while you've got you know that eleven and twelve group, as I understand, talking to teachers is that that they're they're serious. 
the kids doing it then they're quite serious but it's that nine and ten year nine and ten that can be a real problem that's when kids start going off the off the rails too particularly boys and if they're if they're getting into the education system at that at that stage, at 14, 15 years of age, and they've got no literacy skills, I mean, what do you do? Yeah, so that, that's a tough one to fix. Um, that's, that's where you need to um, uh, have the, the bifurcation, if you like, between the, technical, the more technical approach and the academic approach. Yeah, yeah. So do teachers get paid enough? Uh, I'm not really sure exactly what they get paid now. I think I think the problem is about seventy. So you're basically your average wage, and that's that's pretty much straight out of college. So about, yeah, about with, seventy. I think one of the problems is that the 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 pay scales for teachers is too flat. That is, when you graduate from college, you you you, you probably start at the better pay that a young lawyer starts, but you don't go up. So every, everyone gets paid the same thing, more or less. Well, that, you, you that, they say about say that about police that you're straight out of the academy on a pretty pretty healthy wage, uh, but then you really got to then, yeah. In, in then, police, then nothing yeah. happens. Yeah, nothing yeah. happens for a long time until you become a senior councillor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the yeah. lawyers eventually catch up. Yeah. Yeah. So so so, so the lawyer will start on a right, yeah, and, and if they're good. And if they're good, and if they're making money for the firm, they very quickly go up to a, quite a quite a good part. Yeah, right? yeah. But um, that's a problem with the education pay scales: is that you start too high and don't move enough from there on, in my view. And that's got to come through things like peer assessment. So, so teachers yeah. shouldn't be uh, 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 worried or concerned about other teachers coming into their classrooms and making assessments and, and speaking with them, you know, confidentially, not in front of not in front of a class, but speaking to them afterwards about how you can maybe change things, maybe um, um, uh, consult further, um, plan better, all those sorts of things. That, I would think the best way forward for teachers is to have a regular process of peer assessment. Well, the rest of us in the in the workforce, we all have to go through some kind of assessment. You know, if if you're a lawyer or a doctor or a, um, a public servant or whatever, you all got to go through some kind of assessment. Someone's judging you all the time to work out how much you should get paid. Teachers have made a mistake in in, in avoiding that, and that's holding them back. All right. So we hope that's answered at least some of your questions, Shane. Just to round this off, I actually don't think that we're going all that badly. I mean, we can compare ourselves to the Finns and the Chinese in terms of... Or the Singaporeans generally. Yeah, and and I don't know that that's the right way of going about it. Certainly, we should be looking at primary schools dealing with kids evenly in terms of delivering... Uh, in terms of delivering uh, um, uh, literacy and numeracy, there's a difficulty, but there's a difficulty here, and we we really haven't addressed this as a society because there is no precedent. We've never seen people who just flip through their phones and looking at screens for large periods of the day, and that is generally young people and old people as well. But what are the what are the consequences of that on in terms of literacy, numeracy, etc.? I don't think we've even begun to understand some of the things that are coming our way as a result of that. All right, moving on to sport. Sorry, Just before we leave that, there's a bit to unpack there. Um, Shane, no, I wouldn't give it to the feds to run. Oh, God, worst thing you can do. Worst thing you can do. Yes, there should be an education ministry federally, 
and yes, we should have uh, coordinated and and national uh, national curriculum. But yeah, it's got to be delivered by the states because they do that and they've been doing it for a long time and they know what they're doing. Um, all right, under sport, Jack. Um, uh, but before we get into the results of finals and so forth, the great Alan Ale had passed away on uh, Friday as we record. That's the 15th of September uh, when he passed away. Um, he was an absolutely huge figure. Uh, for for Australian football, Victorian Football League became the AFL pretty much as he was president of it. He was a great player at North Melbourne, played over 200 games, a Brownlow medalist, uh, but probably uh, one of the great sports administrators of our time, took North Melbourne to their first premiership uh, in the days of Ronald Dale Barassi coaching the club. Uh, and then went on to become essentially the uh, the chair of uh, of the of, of the Victorian Football League, and uh, and and basically you would say is the kind of father of the AFL. Yeah, he was a, a dentist. A dentist, dentist if I yeah. Recall. He, he still had the if practice going when he was at North. When, when he was the president at North, yeah. yeah. Always known as Doc Arlett. Never saw him play, but um, no, met no, plenty no, of no. people who did see him play. He played for a North team that wasn't much good, to be fair. Well, they had. Um, they did um, have some moments, and and, and and Alan was a was a great ball player. I like you, I didn't see him play, but it, but uh, he'd have people like Alan Mantello and and Max Ritchie looking after him. Um, they were not that. Well, they were the original shin boners, mate. Those boys. they were. But he he was a new type of president for the VFL yeah. when he got the job, um, and he surrounded himself with uh, people like Barry Sheetley, Max Ritchie, Albert Mantello, these sort of people um, who who really took North Melbourne from a a pretty nowhere kind of club, really, um, uh, to a couple of premierships. Never won uh, one. My, uh, yeah, never yeah. won one. They were the one of the last admitted sides, and they never won one until Alan came in and, and changed the, the very nature of the club. Yes. Um, uh, and, and then after he'd done that, he then went on to become president of the VFL, and again, he changed the way the VFL worked. He was a much more corporate club president and then a much more corporate VFL president. And he kind of set in train the sort of changes that have made the AFL um, the force it is in sport in Australia today. I've been a little disappointed, to be quite honest, that his death, the death of Doc Ayla, hasn't had anywhere near the coverage it should have had because he he was a huge figure in sport in Australia. it's, It's been... Overlooked, and I, I'm I'm waiting to see what sort of mention it will come on the, in the grand final. He really was the, the sort of the, the grandfather, if uh, if you like, of the AFL. Um, he also, so you, you basically, regardless of its eighteen teams or twelve, or you're always dealing with with uh, parochial interests, and he was able to basically create a body that 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 sort of. Uh, Overcame those issues. Uh, he was uh, he got the Swans up to Sydney. Uh, they're playing the grand final this weekend, uh, and really the national competition began in his tenure as as, uh, as chair of the VFL. Yeah, without Doc Arlett, um, uh, they they would be ten years behind where they are today. Yes, R.I.P. One of the greats. One of the greats as a, as a player and also an administrator. A man of great vision. 
uh, RIP Alan Aylett. And Jack onto the Brownlow, a controversial winner, not for me, Patrick Cripps. I thought uh, I thought he would be a good thing, actually, and you could get him at fairly good odds. Uh, Lockie Neal was the favourite beaten uh, and in pretty much in the last call of the night. Uh, and a lot of uh, a lot of people have been saying that he shouldn't have been playing at all. Uh, shouldn't have been, should, shouldn't have been playing at all in the game that we got the three votes against Collingwood, who's clearly the best man on the ground that day. Uh, but they, they're referring to uh, his uh, collision with uh, uh, the Lions player uh, uh, Archie, I think, and um, and uh, and Archie was concussed and missed a couple of games. Um, so, um, Jack, what do you think? Is it the fairest and best? Oh, I don't think it's been the fairest and best for a good while. <laughs> it probably never was, was it, really? Um, mm. But it is umpires' votes. And for those people uh, who don't follow it closely, it, the umpires get together and uh, the field umpires, they don't listen to the goal umpires or the boundary umpires, but the field umpires will get together, there's three of them, and they'll figure out their three, two, ones for each game they umpire. And uh, and they called uh, Patrick Cripps... Uh, I think one of the stunning things about it is that he got three BOGs in in uh, two losing games, and that's what Patrick Cripps gives you every time. Is is a Carlton supporter? You, you're often in awe of the way he just throws his body in, picks up the team, puts them on the shoulder, and and says, "Right, oh boys, here we go." Um, but yeah, yeah. After after a couple of years where, or, or eighteen months or so, where he was. I don't know whether he's playing wounded or what, but he he, he was sort of falling away. Oh, he's he's coming right back to his best. Yeah, definitely injured yeah. last year. Uh, had some surgery this year. Um, but look, he came to the club uh, not known for his running abilities. Uh, he was very very slow over the over the four k time uh, uh, time trial, and now he's in the front four or five. So that tells you just how committed he's been, uh, and. Uh, He's a very, very large human being as well, Jack, for a midfielder and very hard to stop. A great win. A great win for, a, for from a Carlton Barracker. A great win to see Carlton pick up the Brownlow and, of course, uh, the goal-kicking medal as well. Managed to snaffle that as well. So happy days. Um, and, of course, it, uh, it, it, it that all rounded off the weekend of the AFL where... Uh, the Cats moved into a grand final after giving the Lions a nice old shellacking. And the Pies v Swans, as if we couldn't have predicted it, went down to the wire with the Pies just falling a point short. It won so many close games, but couldn't manage that one. A cracking game. Yeah, uh, terrific one, game of the best, one of the best finals games you'll see. Uh, it wasn't pretty. Um, there wasn't much time or space for players. Um, uh, but it was just a great spectacle. And, of course, 45,000 at the SCG for a preliminary final. The atmosphere, fantastic. Yeah, fantastic atmosphere. You get 45 at the SCG, it's like 90 at the MCG. Uh, yeah, drove home. I was in Sydney on Saturday night. Missed the second half, caught the replay yesterday. But uh, driving home down the Hume, uh, lots of Collingwood people down there, lots of uh, banners flying, scarves in the windows, all that sort of stuff, and some good humans, some good human banner in the roadhouses, Jack. Uh, lots of pies had made their way up uh, to watch their side, and they could be very, very pleased with the season Collingwood have had. They've uh, really stepped up this year. Yeah, uh, Richard Hines on Twitter put it pretty well, I thought. Uh, he said, look, Premierships are pretty hard to win. There's 18 clubs. 
Um, you're not going to win them very often. Um, but if you didn't enjoy, if you're a Pies fan, and he is a Pies fan, if you're a Pies fan and you didn't enjoy this season, you're doing football wrong. <laughs> That's absolutely right. And we'll see that this week because we've got the, the AFL Grand Final week, the parade, all the sort of build-up. Uh, and... Um, uh, and of course, uh, uh, the Cats will play the Swans at the MCG in front of 100,000 people. But what we see, if a side gets beat in a grand final, they're almost shamed, aren't they? You know, that mm. particularly if they get well beaten. Uh, that that, but they've actually finished two. There's, there's another 16 sides that have gone worse than them. Um, but yeah. there'll be a focus on them having lost it. It's just the way it works. Who do you think's going to win, Jack? What's the, I know what the heart will be saying. Oh, the hearts definitely with the Swans, but look, the Cats have been the best best side since the mid the mid season bye, yeah. um, uh, and 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 the next two best teams have been uh, the Pies and the Swans, who have been very very good as well, and not too far behind. So it starts it starts you know at two thirty on Saturday afternoon. It's zero zero. It starts even. So there we go. Yeah, and uh, and we hope that both sides can get their best best. Best uh, 22 on the park. Uh, jo- and, and the joy of sport is that there's chance involved. It needs a little bit of luck. Yeah, look, indeed. I'm, look, by the way, I, I, I did watch the game last night and I'm not always uh, prepared to give umpires a, 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 a free ride, but I thought the umpiring on the weekend was excellent. And, and the, you know, the AFL is Australian rules football, a very difficult game to umpire. And uh, and I thought they were terrific. I think they just let it go. I let a lot of these holding the ball decisions go. Let a lot of these things go. Just let the players play, uh, and 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 intervene when you have to. Bit different from the from the rugby union on Thursday night. Indeed, the um, uh, the umpires weren't trying to be the stars of the show. By the way, um, never seen anyone Jackie pays their money to go and watch people umpire. No, um, uh, Nigel Owens, the great Welsh, is he, he's Welsh, isn't he? The, 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 the referee, the rugby referee from the UK, um, uh, he was finally tracked down right. and asked what he, what he thought of the decision um, by uh, referee Matthew Rano. This is the time-wasting at, at, at the Bledisloe on yeah, Thursday. Yeah, yeah, the Bledisloe Cup. And he actually he, he backed his fellow ref. He thought it was fair DK. He thought, he thought it was okay. But my view of that is... It was a very selective, a very selective enforcement of a problem that rugby has, which is that there's way too much time wasting yeah. in the game. Yeah. Um, uh, and this was a this was a very selective enforcement of the time wasting rule. Um, and they've only just got to look at the at the at the code next to them and fig- and figure out what they do. Uh, so in the NRL, you don't see that level of stoppage. And you still have the collision type injuries, and you still have the mm. the breaks in play, and and so forth. You know, just while they're umpiring decisions being made or being sent upstairs uh, for review, um, but they still manage to get keep things rolling. And I think that's something the uh, the ARU could learn from. Or sorry, you you not just the ARU, but uh, rugby uh, generally. Yeah, yeah, rugby generally. And that brings us to one of, sorry, one no. of my American mates says, says if, 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 if you're watching a rugby game on the television, you spend about forty minutes watching a fat bloke getting his legs rubbed. <laughs> you do. It does happen quite a lot. Um, yes. Okay. And that leads us just as we go out uh, to the, uh, the NRL, uh, the bunnies. Uh, the Rabbitohs, uh, 
our Prime Minister's side uh, through to play the Panthers in the prelim this weekend. Uh, this weekend coming after defeating the Sharks 38-12. The Eels smashed the Raiders uh, <coughs> and uh, put them away for the season and they will go on to play the Cowboys. I have a feeling the Eels might, uh, might go okay there. I mean, the Cowboys have had the week off and I'm not sure that it's a great advantage in rugby league. Uh, so I, I'm going for the Eels uh, and the Panthers to make their way through. Uh, the Bunnies will come up against a very, very good side, the best side in it this week, uh, this year, I should yeah. say. Now, speak, speaking of the Bunnies being the Prime Minister's side, um, uh, he's also, I can tell, tell you, a Swans fan. The first time I met Albo, uh, it was a 2005 grand final night. We were in the lounge uh, at the Qantas Lounge at uh, Tullamarine, heading back after uh, after a Swans grand final win. Uh, and I was there with a mate who's a, a mutual friend, and we had a beer with Elbow, and, and he was very much a Swans fan. Oh, look, he's, he's about to have a very, very big weekend uh, too. He should be back back in Australia by then, so he'll be at the, uh, the, the AFL grand final at the G. Do you recommend that he hands out the cup, Jack? Oh, oh don't always do that. a mistake. Oh, don't no, do that. That's yeah. always a I'm mistake. I'm sure his yeah. mind is a well across that. Hawkey, Hawkey got booed. That's yeah. how long ago it's been happening. And then I think he just yeah. said, I'm not doing that anymore. And so they don't, no. yeah, they don't use the, uh, the prime ministers anymore. It's not much, not much fun. And even when they, when they cut, uh, when the cameras cut away to, uh, the VIP sitting there, there's usually a few boos just, just, just because you're the prime minister. It doesn't matter whether you're yeah. popular or not. Yeah. Exactly right. Yep, stay away from the cameras, Elbow, and you'll have a good weekend. Go Swannies. Uh, we'll talk uh, uh, next week in the in the wrap-up of the AFL grand final season. Uh, and uh, I think the Eels, the Eels uh, should uh, should give the Cowboys a bit of a touch-up and make their way to the uh, make their way to the NRL grand final. Almost certainly to play Panthers. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Jack, for your time and uh, consideration of this broad range of issues that is completely dominated by the Royal Funeral. And uh, as speaking of someone in the media and a consumer of it, I look forward to a time when we don't have this sort of uh, uh, preponderance of, uh, of uh, Royal Funerals. Cheers, mate. All right, mate. All the best. And we'd like to thank our listeners for uh, for tuning in as usual. And we would ask you, if you do have some comments, drop it to me just like uh, our mate Shane did. Drop it to me on our on our Twitter DMs and we'll get to it without, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, regardless of what you have to say, if you've got some questions, if you've got some criticisms, if you've got some compliments, Chuck them in and we'll deal with them. And uh, I also ask you to uh, drop us a line at the conditional release program at gmail.com. But you can easily get me on DMs on my Twitter DMs at Jack the Insider. Thank you all for your time and we'll talk next week.